Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 16, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. In a few moments, we're pleased to bring you the second half of our two-part series on music and cinema. We'll be joined by a very special and accomplished guest, Dr. Annabelle Cohen, professor of psychology and an expert on the mental impact of music and media. But first, an exciting announcement for all of our listeners in the greater Puget Sound region. With Kitsap County moving to phase two this week, the historic Roxy Theater in downtown Bremerton reopened today. Showing now, boy, man, does it feel good to say that is our friend based on the true story about a caring man who puts his own life on hold to help out his friends, a couple facing a devastating crisis, starring Jason Segal, Dakota Johnson, and Casey Affleck. Also showing at the Roxy is Blythe Spirit, based on the story by Noel Coward. A spiritualist medium holds a seance for a writer suffering from writer's block, but accidentally summons the spirit of his deceased first wife. Starring Judy Dench, Dan Stevens, Isla Fisher, and Leslie Mann. Uh, masks are still required at the Roxy, but uh, may be removed once seated at a proper distance from other customers and when eating and drinking. So visit farawayentertainment.com for showtimes, get your tickets, get out there, load up on popcorn and junior mints, and support the historic Roxy Theater this weekend. Boy, and again, it sounds great to say that we can go see a film in person again. It's been so long. So the Roxy holds a special place in our hearts for a lot of reasons. High on the list is that it's the home of the West Sound Film Festival. Due to COVID, 2020 was a virtual year for the festival, but our fingers are crossed that the 2021 festival coming up this August will be held in person and submissions are now being accepted. So submit your film at www.filmfreeway.com forward slash West Sound Film Festival. You can find the link in our show notes and visit their Facebook page at at West Sound Film Festival for more info. And for all you actors out there, Virtual Theater 2020 will be holding auditions for an upcoming virtual production of Moliere's Tartuffe. Auditions will be held via Zoom tomorrow, Saturday, February 20th from 1 to 5 p.m. Pacific time with callbacks on Sunday. For more information and registration links, uh, check out their Facebook page at at VTheater2020 or their webpage linked in the show notes. This week, we conclude our two-part series focused on music by exploring why we're drawn to the music we hear in film and why, well, after we leave the cinema, we're still humming the theme from Jaws or Jurassic Park or Star Wars. Helping us understand the real magic of music in motion pictures is Annabelle Cohen, professor of psychology at the University of Prince Edward Island and adjunct professor in the School of Graduate Studies at Dalhousie University. She received her BA degree from McGill University, her MA and PhD from Queen's University in Psychology, and an associateship of the Royal Conservatory of Music of Toronto. She established the UPEI Music Cognition and Auditory Perception Research and Training Laboratory for studies on musical grammar acquisition and for studies on film music perception, funded by two Canadian national granting agencies. Annabelle was also editor of Psychomusicology, Music, Mind, and Brain, and is an associate editor of Canadian Acoustics and a consultant on the editorial board for Music Perception, Musicae Sciente, Music in the Moving Image, and Psychology of Music, 
and has been highly involved in many aspects of academia related to music and film and other media. She co-edited The Psychology of Music and Multimedia and is an elected fellow of the American Psychological Association, the Canadian Psychological Association, and the Psychonomics Society. Currently, Annabelle has a new book entitled Congruence and Association in Film Music under contract with Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Annabelle. Thank you. So, uh, Annabelle, you have quite the background and experience studying and teaching psychology, specifically as it applies to music in multimedia and film, and more precisely in those, uh, in those genres. How did you arrive at the specialization for music in multimedia? Well, I'd like to go back a little into the history of the field of music psychology answer this question. This field has come into its own only in the last two or three decades. But when I started out in graduate school in the 70s with an interest in this field, there really wasn't a field. And so I conducted my graduate research, which was at Queen's University, on melody recognition and memory. And while today almost every university psychology program or music department has ongoing research, in music psychology, and I say that's that's the case at uh, University of Washington, for example. And textbooks in perception, cognition, psychology of language refer to research in music. Um, at that time, years ago, there was almost no research in this field. So studies on memory for music provided an essential foundation for the field and were really the first place that people started to do research in the area. And the articles that came out of my research in this area, which were co-authored with my supervisor, Lola Cuddy, continue to be cited. Uh, for example, showing that the music theoretic term like tonality has psychological significance and uh, melodies that have tonality are more memorable than those which lack this kind of structure. But of course, there were many other questions that were of interest, and one of which was, how does music influence film perception? To study such a question at that time wasn't easy, and nowadays, everyone really has a music psychology laboratory on their laptop or even on their cell phone where they can create or store, analyze, and present any sound imaginable. But at that time, it wasn't possible and, and it wasn't even easy to create melodies for control in laboratory research, let alone control a moving image at the same time. But in the 80s, when a student, Sandra Marshall, approached me, I was at the University of Toronto at the time, to supervise a project on the role of music and film, I jumped at that opportunity. And uh, it, it so happened that in Sandra's class in social psychology, they had used shown a famous experimental animation created by two researchers named Heider and Simmel. It was actually created in the 1940s, and it showed a large triangle and a small triangle in a small circle moving around in a circle just for two minutes. And the authors of that study had asked people to report what they observed. And typically, observers reported that a mean bully was an antagonizing an innocent couple. Now, this result is strange in that what people saw was three geometric figures moving around. They didn't seem human beings, but people attributed motivations to these characters. And we decided we would use this film clip because it was simple, it was available, and we would explore whether two different music backgrounds could influence 
the interpretation of these characters in some subtle ways. And we carried out two experiments, one involving two different uh, kinds of music from Prokofiev, and then another experiment in which Sandra made up two contrasting types of music. And in both of these studies, we showed that the music had subtle influences on the meaning of not just the film, but actually the individual characters. And this is one of the things that we did, which might not have occurred to everyone, but we, we wanted to see how the characters were, were judged. And what was striking was that the music influenced the characters in different ways. So that if you had music that was highly considered to be active music, it wouldn't affect all the characters in the same way. And yes, you can say that film music likely changes the meaning because the film has a certain film music has a certain meaning, so it, that meaning is brought to the film. But uh, this was a bit puzzling as to why the music would influence one character in one way and the opposite way in another character. So after pondering the situation and replicating the observation, make sure that it was a real one, then we seem to be able to come up with an explanation that the movement in the music and the movement in the film needed to be taken into consideration. And that we had to think of a two-stage process, not just a one-stage process where the meaning gets ascribed to the film, but that the music directs attention in certain ways to certain parts of the film. And then the meaning of the music can be ascribed in a particular way. So this two-stage process uh, had an idea of what I called structural congruence. This is how the patterns, uh, visual and auditory patterns kind of change temporally together. And then the association of the meaning as a separate process. And this became known as a congruence association model or CAM. And it's something that I continued to pursue. So in answer to your question, how did this specialization come about? It was through uh, the opportunity to carry out some research, but on top of that, it was an unexpected finding. And that is so important in science that if you find something uh, that, that is puzzling, it often opens the doors to many other projects and uh, a new specialization. So that was what happened in this case. And I, I'm still working with this congruence association model that comes up and other uh, researchers have found it uh, inspirational also. And I have a book under contract with Oxford University Press on the model. So they invited this based on some other writing that I had done in other books for them. Well, I've actually seen that animation, and it's it's fascinating, and I've seen it played with multiple types of music to see how your emotions react to that without even thinking about it. All of a sudden, this character changes from the villain to the hero or, or things like that, and it is. It's just a simple geometric shape or, or series of shapes. I've taken some psychology in the past, taken some music classes in the past, but never psychology of music class. So... Can you tell us a little bit about some of the courses that you've taught? Is the audience mostly psychology students who are interested in film and multimedia, or 
do you have students who are interested in music, maybe budding composers who want to dive into the psychology side of it? Well, music is uh, so much a part of students' lives now. And uh, well, to answer that question in general, I think it would depend what program the course is coming out of. So, and it depends on the, your institution, I think, where, where they're going to, uh, how they're going to pitch this. For myself, uh, my, my, I've been very fortunate in being able to teach the basic uh, music cognition course at a senior level, because it was always thought as difficult, and I think that's fair, uh, to have placed it at that level for our students in psychology. And I'm teaching mostly uh, psychology major students who've had a lot of uh, psychology behind them. But the course can be offered and is offered in music programs also. So they would attract the students in music. And it also depends on how much a music department is respecting of what is going on in, in the field. So um, the students that I have are mostly from psychology and they do worry a little bit about the music theory aspect of it. And I explain to them as I do also because in the last 10 years, I've had a second course, which is an introduction to the psychology of music. And that's more open, but still all the students are required to have the introductory course to psychology for this particular course. But it does draw upon uh, non-psychologists because so many students are also interested in psychology. So they've taken that introductory course. Uh, but I tell them that it's this is like, if you're taking chemistry, you have to learn the language of chemistry, the periodic table. If you're taking psycholinguistics, you have to learn a little bit about linguistics and grammar and the international phonetic alphabet. And if you're going to take a course in music psychology, you have to learn about music theory, which comes as a shock. But they also have to learn a little bit about physics too, and, and many different disciplines. So and then I explained to them, well, you know, you may not have one specialization that will help you, but you have something else that you bring to the course and it, it balances out. Well, it's one thing that I've always been interested in because I've, you know, uh, we had an interview with Nick Dolan, who's a film composer last week. And I remember mentioning to him in that conversation that from a, from a film composition perspective, music and film, I've always wondered why we... Uh, you come out of a, a film and we, we continue to listen to the soundtrack. And we continue to, you know, hum, you know, some of these themes that kind of stick with us. And, you know, we talked about how more than anything, if you take music out of a film, it loses almost all of its depth. So the film without music really isn't a film. It's just a series of pictures. So much so that the music is a character in and of itself in a film. You know, why do you think that music is so important in the composition, you know, pun intended, of a film? Well, I would go back to the film theorists who will admit, uh, such as Christopher Palmer, he's written on, on uh, this, but others as well, that the images on the screen are two-dimensional in some ways, and that the music brings the third dimension. Now, of course, there are some films that don't have music and they work. They're rare though. 
And then there are films that don't have any dialogue and only music, and they also work. Uh, but again, those are rare. And, and just as you say, Greg, that the uh, norm is to have the music and you miss it from the minute the film starts, from the credits. Even the credits are extremely important and the music sets the mood and, and gives you the context for the film. Um, so how, uh, why is that? And I think the first answer I will give is that music conveys emotion very well, more so than the image on the screen. Music engages this emotional component and that's an important part of the narrative experience, that that's what you want when you go to watch. When you want to watch a film, you want to engage in the narrative and be moved. And the music contributes to that. And there's uh, that engagement may in part be based on the fact that according to at least one theorist and, and many more now who are uh, talking about musical embodiment, that when we listen to music, we are engaging our body in uh, subtle ways. One theory of Katie Overy and Isfen Molnar Sakax uh, suggests that when we listen to music, we're subconsciously producing the music, we are performing it. If we don't play a musical instrument, we're singing it. If we do play an instrument, we're, we're beating a drum or we're, we're doing something that is as if we're creating it. So just having the music there engages us more than not having, having it. Uh, we know that listening to music engages an enormous part of our brain, almost all of our brain, it, it is sometimes said. So in that, in that sense, the music makes it a very complete experience, helps to make it a very complete experience. There is evidence from neuroscience that when you play a visual image by itself, part of the brain is activated. When you play the music by itself, part of the brain is activated. But only when you play the two together is a third part of the brain, the limbic system, the emotional system is activated. So it's a combination that also is key here. And then there are many other functions besides the emotional one where, where music plays a role. Uh, for example, uh, as you said at the beginning, establishing the context, the historical context, like if it's a Western and you hear banjo music, well, kind of helps to get you into, into it, or if it's a sci-fi music and you hear discordant music or the theremin, for example, uh, will put you in, into that uh, or tell you it's a horror film. But also uh, in terms of the many cuts that are made, even in like in two minutes, you may have 30 different cuts and you would never notice it, you know, because the music provides you with a seamless experience. And on the other hand, the music can help segment uh, from one section in time or one section of the narrative to another and transport you into another part. So it has many different roles. It, it's kind of like you mentioned the cuts. It's interesting you mentioned that because it's, it's, you know, the editing. It almost it's that continuity in the background behind all the editing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense now that you mentioned that. I hadn't even thought about that before. 
the editing is is key and a person is in the background but is really a composer on, onto uh, him or herself. Music can obviously be used as a tool in many, many ways, emotionally, first and foremost. Uh, now, you contributed a chapter to the Handbook of Music and Emotion Theory, Research, and Applications published back in 2001. And the intro uh, to your chapter, which is titled Music as a Source of Emotion in Film, um, you stated something really interesting. You said, in spite of the integral role of music for film, Film music has been largely neglected by the disciplines of both musicology and music psychology until the last decade. So I'm, I'm assuming that the 1990s. So why do you think that is? Why, why has academia, I guess, turned kind of a blind eye to something that's so culturally significant? Well, I think uh, there are several ways of answering that question, I think. But part of the neglect of film music from academia may be the association with the commercialism of a film and film music. And meanwhile, while composers are working hard with their contemporary art music that many people don't want to listen to, and maybe it will stand the test of time, but you won't, those composers won't be around to find out if that's true. But in many cases, what is being written in contemporary art music is very challenging for people to uh, understand and it's not accessible. Whereas you can put that kind of music into film and get away with it. And it's actually a way for composers to expose this music to a broader audience. So that was one way in which some composers justified their involvement in this. So they said, this is a way I can get my 12-tone music played and listened to. So I think there is that commercial, uh, the possibility that people might say, oh, you're selling out because you're going to get paid for this. And we're struggling away here and we can't even get our piece on a on a program uh, or no one will come, like we'll have 10 people. And meanwhile, a composer of film music is having thousands and they get immediate uh, rewards, uh, many levels from this. Yet there were many classical composers who did write for film. Martin Marx at MIT is a film theory scholar. He, he's written about a number of these, for example, Eric Satie. And uh, there are other composers like Dmitry Shostakovich and Aaron Copland and Prokofiev, who I mentioned already, who did write for, for film. I, I think part of it is, you could say, the complexity of film music, how it works, and that you have so many disciplines involved with it. It's not just the music, but how does it work with the film and to have an understanding of film studies, which is not an old discipline unto itself. So, so there's that. So and now we have a, a lot of scholarly, more scholarly work being conducted. Uh, for example, you can take courses in film scoring and get degrees in it at NYU, Steinhardt is one example, or the University of Southern California. So there's got to be scholarship involved with, with that. There are conferences now. There's the annual conference of Music and the Moving Image, which takes place in New York annually. And uh, there are um, journals dedicated to 
to this. So there's a change. And I think it's a respect among the disciplines. But as my colleagues and I have written, this is an area which is begging for interdisciplinary work and for people in separate disciplines to come together and get and and speak to each other and it's hard to do to get out of your department and walk over to the if you're in psychology and walk over to the music department and say you know would you be interested in working on this or talk to somebody in film studies it's just not easy to do and it, it isn't done much but really it is needed and it's not something that that's going to work in a year, like you, these interdisciplinary groups need to form and build and come to know and share each other's knowledge. So I think there's been much progress with this and the future looks bright. Oh, for sure. Now, now you mentioned the the degrees that you can get in film scoring and, and I mentioned Nick Dolan, who we spoke with last week, who has a degree in film scoring from Berkeley outside of Boston. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot more of of that. So in, in you mentioned earlier, um, and, I, and I also kudos for mentioning uh, Prokofiev a few times. He's one of my favorites. I'm a big fan of the, the, the Russian masters. Um, but you mentioned earlier about the dimension that music adds to the, uh, the, the pictures that are on the screen, kind of makes it that three-dimensional. Um, in the forward to the psychology of music and multimedia, the book that you contributed to, it's expressed that music has traditionally been looked at independently, such as a song or opera or symphony. But when paired with media, such as film, it takes on a whole new meaning. The context of it changes, the implication being that there's a synergy between the two. When it's combined, the sum is greater than the individual parts. So was there a turning point when this started to be looked at or recognized by content providers? And I'm thinking music videos in the 1980s, when you when you started to pair music with images and things like that. But there seems to have caused a sea change in the way music and media are combined. Have, have you seen a specific point in time when there was more of a focus on putting these all together and understanding that there's a, a bit of a synergy when, when video and music is put together? I want to go back into history again on this one to the break between the talkies when the talkies came out. So until that time, there was an enormous industry of music for film. It said, I think over 80% of the professional musicians were involved in that industry. That's how they made their livelihood, through performing in theaters, playing piano uh, for the theaters or small orchestras, uh, composing or in the pu publishing business or the music that came out of uh, those. So then when the talkies came, it was thought, why would we need music? Suddenly we can have a realistic sound and image. We don't need music anymore. And it uh, turned out not to be the case. And the directors realize, oh, the audience likes music. Okay, let's have some scenes with music in the narrative, in the diegesis. So they would create uh, stories that would have um, composers or have people playing music in the park or what, whatever, so that 
the audience could have music and they realized still, no, this is not enough. So I, th I think there was a recognition at that point of the importance of music uh, for, for this medium. Um, going into the current use of music videos, I think uh, this is a new art form and one in which, you know, it's up to the imagination of the uh, director of, of this. And they, these are short, typically two, three, four minutes, where many resources can be put into a very short amount of time. And I think it's quite extraordinary the budgets that are put in to a few minutes to, to make these extraordinary spectacles. And uh, I don't know how much farther they can go in being creative. It's, it's pretty astounding what, what has come. But I also want, would like to say that, yeah, we think of music as the song unto itself or the opera or whatever. But it's also said that music is rarely alone. Other people say that. I, I think it's Nicholas Cook and that music is rarely alone. It's always the background to dance or to song, or, and that it was only during, you know, the 19th century concert hall where music became something that you would go to attend. And even then, in the concert hall for classical music, it's not music is alone. You're, you're there in the concert hall. It's a particular setting. You are going there to be with other people watching or listening. And so where music is alone it may be in your own home in that sweet spot and that's kind of rare that people are engaged that way so music is something that typically i think is with something else and the music videos are uh, certainly exploiting what the technology is able to do to produce and engage our brains with these wonderful experiences that are so amazing and enjoyable. Well, talking about talkies, uh, Greg has a question about talkies in our, our next segment. So our guest is Professor Annabelle Cohen, and we've been discussing the psychology of music in film. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation and learn more about music's power to move us emotionally. So stick with us. We'll be back right here on Highland and Haver. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is February 19th, the birthday of tough guy Lee Marvin, who made a name for himself portraying hard-boiled characters in westerns like Paint Your Wagon and Cat Baloo. And happy birthday as well to the very versatile Jeff Daniels, best known as wacky and not-too-bright Harry Dunn in the cult classic Dumb and Dumber, and more recently, and to great acclaim, lead anchor Will McAvoy in Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom. And in a bit of diversion, murderous one-armed outlaw Frank Griffin in Netflix's wonderfully wicked Western, Godless. Also born today in 1967 in Puerto Rico, Benicio Del Toro, best known for gritty dramas and thrillers like Sicario, Traffic, 21 Grams, Snatch, The Usual Suspects, and Guardians of the Galaxy. And in 2004, Millie Bobby Brown, who electrified as Eleven, the psychokinetic youngster in Netflix upside-down mega-hit Stranger Things, portrayed the spunky, self-reliant younger sister to Sherlock and Enola Holmes, also on Netflix. By the way, two thumbs up from the Haver Daughters on that one. If you haven't seen it yet, it's delightful for the whole family. And Millie Bobby Brown takes on none other than the king of monsters and the king of 
Kong, so King Kong, and aptly named Godzilla vs. Kong in theaters and released HBO Max on March 31st of this year. So which team are you on, Matt? Kong or Godzilla? That's a big debate in our house. Oh, Kong for sure. Kong? Oh, yeah. Kong all the way. <laughs> yeah, I think we're we're on the we're on the Godzilla house in this family, so it's going to be uh, you know between the we can battle back and forth on that one. Boy, I can't imagine the music that's going to be in that film. It's come a long way since back in the silent films when even before you know the talkies when you had the piano accompaniment to the music, building suspense or helping to direct the audience to the certain mood or feeling of the film, and then up through um, the talkies and up to uh, this film. Geez. Okay, so even even before talkies, you know, so silent picture, right? Silent pictures were always accompanied by a piano or organ. Um, the music building suspense or helping direct the audience to a certain mood or or feeling, right? The you mentioned in the psychology of music and multimedia that even infants react differently when shown videos with musical accompaniment to those without. So, is there something at a basic level? psychologically that makes us react when we hear a musical musical accompaniment to a video? Uh, the brain has an enormous challenge of making sense of all of the sensory stimulation it receives millisecond by millisecond at the eye and at the ear. And also the pressures on our body and uh, the movements of our joints and muscles, all of this is going on now, one saving grace for the brain is the fact that these packages of information are highly correlated. For example, when we say a certain vowel, our mouths form a particular shape. When we say O versus ah, everybody's mouth is in this, this shape, okay? And the way we do that our muscles are always moving in the same way. So our brains are always exposed to these coordinated multimedia sources of information. There's, there's a temporal congruence between light and sound to which we're always exposed to from the moment after birth. So within a sensory, even within a sensory modality, so within a melody, we may have the music, uh, musical line is ascending and getting louder at the same time or and getting softer at the same time. So we can have that kind of coordinated dimensional information happening. And the Gestalt psychologists in Germany in the 1930s, and they eventually moved to the United States, uh, they drew attention, and everyone in, in introductory psychology learns about the Gestalt psychologists, um, but they drew attention to the brain's sensitivity to configurational properties. Uh, they pointed to examples where visual information was grouped by the brain into meaningful units. So, for example, if you see a row of X's and you see a row of O's below it, you're not going to just see X's and O's, but you're going to see two rows of like things. And the same is true of sound, that if you listen to a piece of music, um, a band or an orchestra, you're going to hear a melody against the background. And the melody, if it's, it may be sung by a soprano who has the same quality of voice all the way through that, or it's played by a flute. 
and and so that similarity grabs your attention and you have a figure against the ground. So take it one, one step further and we see that these configurations are not just limited to one sensory modality, but you can have patterning, and I've talked about this already, you know, configurations, uh, congruencies between sound and vision. And our brains, as you started off with the question, Greg, are we innately directed or built to be sensitive to this? And whether we are or not, we're exposed to these congruencies. And it's kind of a way of uh, making life simpler for our brain by focusing in on the congruencies rather than the random things that are happening in the world. And so uh, an infant that directs attention to two coordinated audio-visual stimuli, uh, you can understand why that might happen, whether it's innate or it's learned early in life, but it, it is definitely something to which the infants are, are sensitive to. And uh, I think carries throughout our whole life that we're, we're always looking for uh, the consistencies in our environment and, and have reason to uh, be sensitive to these when they happen simultaneously in the auditory and the visual world. So your research shows that audience members develop expectations for the types of music that match up with the visuals they're seeing in, uh, or, or the context of the story itself. So does this stem from a natural reaction to certain tones, say ominous tones, discordant tones in a horror movie um, that our subconscious responds to naturally? Or is it because we've been exposed to so many movies throughout our lives where composers have used the same style of music in their storytelling? So is it, I guess it's kind of a nature versus nurture question. Well, I, I think both of those, you know, we never have a nature <laughs> versus nurture answer. No, they always end up with a combination. But I think it's fair to say that some sounds are innately discordant and unpleasant. And we would have a negative reaction to them. And if those sounds are played during a neutral scene, that there will be a negative interpretation of that scene. It would follow naturally. Um, similarly, there are pleasant sounds like do, mi, so is, oh, the basis of so much of our Western music is found in these small, pure ratios of the relation of the octave and um, the major triad, the ratios of the frequencies, fours, fives to six. Uh, so these are innately, there is an innate positive response to these and they are easier for the brain to handle uh, and infants can, can remember these simple patterns more easily. So yes, there's an innate component to this, but there's also the learning that's going on and the composers are teaching us all the time. They develop conventions and we hear the same convention over and over so that we know that the Jaws theme, if we hear that in some other setting, we know what, what it means. Um, immediately have something like that come to mind and yeah, so there's a, a building of that and that a person from 
who's not from Western culture is not going to be sensitive to some of these conventions. And the same for a person from Western culture who is opposed to music of another um, musical culture would not benefit from all of the conventions, although some of them are based in these innate properties, I think, that you're, you've also pointed to. You also talk about some of the structural sounds in a film, such as objects moving around, and that the brain directs more attention to things that make sense to those that don't. Is this why it's so hard to watch something when the audio and video are out of sync by even a little bit? I mean, this kind of really underscores the importance of sound editing on a film, doesn't it? And also the significance of a film like Fantasia, where it's really the opposite of what we've been talking about, where the visual is set against the audio rather than the audio against the visual. So there's a natural relation between the auditory and visual senses because of the synchronization synchronization of auditory and visual stimulation arising from change in the real world. Uh, as mentioned, we have the example of coordinated auditory and visual stimulation when speaking, but we can add to this the sound and image of locomotion or simply turning the page of a book. You can hear the page turn um, and see it turn or typing at a keyboard. You can see your fingers move, but you hear them. Now, there's an exception to this, which is electronic music. You can create any sound you like with electronic music, and there's not any motion involved. But other than that, whenever you create music, you have to have motion. You have to have moved something in order to get the pressure to change at your ear. And I think there's this, and when you have motion, there's something that can be seen. And so there's something very fundamental between the movement in music and the movement, the visual movement and the movement of the body and all of these things, I think, account for that natural relation that you're talking about. And then if it's Fantasia, that was turned into ballet, wasn't it, in, in many respects. And it is that moving pattern. I mean, Fantasia is a wonderful example of this coordination between the music and the visual. But it's all the temporal patterning is so important in that. But ironically, the movies have produced the potential for violating this natural relationship between sound and vision. Movies allow for the presentation of images that don't correspond to the physics of the world. In movies, apples don't have to fall down from a tree. An apple could move up to a tree. And children are being exposed to these kinds of unrealistic or unnatural relations, but not so many that it's going to destroy their experience with natural relations. And we don't know what this will mean in the very long term of this kind of exposures. Um, but our brains are exposed to an infinite variety of examples of coordinated visual and auditory information. And the human body is a reliable and continuing source of that information. To my mind, this is where this idea of the coordination of the audio and the video are, are fundamental. But I would also like to add here that uh, there are new methodologies for studying this with neuroscience, research by Yuri Hans Hassan at Princeton University 
uh, explored the recordings of brainwaves from audiences, the same long pieces, long film excerpts, uh, and uh, a field he called neurocinematics, where you would have long uh, passages of EEG, electroencephalographic data, and looking at coordination of uh, these patterns across individuals and was able to show that different directors could create more coordination. And I think this is a technique that can be applied to uh, the role of, of music. So there have been other researchers uh, that have done similar kinds of recordings or uh, with functional magnetic resonance imaging for I think shorter passages, uh, such as the work of Matthew Bezdick at Georgia Institute of Technology. And he has actually done some research with music on this and yet to find the, the results that one might expect where he's looked at different kinds of music on the reaction uh, to suspense and or sus suspenseful versus non-suspenseful music and has shown that people will judge a passage as more suspenseful when there's suspenseful music but he had yet to show this in the brainwaves so this remains to be seen but it is a technique that I think is going to be very useful to explore this, what you're referring to as the natural relation. And I should say that the music that Bezdick used was not designed for these congruencies. He just used music that was emotionally suspenseful, but he didn't use music that was congruent structurally. And so I think there is a place for, for the, this to be explored in the future. Well, that's great. And, and thank you so much, Annabelle. This has been um, educational for me. I've always been fascinated with uh, how the, the marrying of the, these two mediums, it's a magic, lack of a better word, uh, that the, when you bring film, the visual, and music, the auditory together, it just adds so much to each. So thank, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating interview. Well, thank you so much for your questions and for reading this material so carefully. Uh, it's been, you know, most uh, impressive to me that uh, some of this has, uh, has been communicated to the broader audience. And I know my colleagues will also feel uh, very rewarded by that as well. Well, we're happy to do it. And we, we know we've got a lot of listeners out there who uh, are not only actors, uh, directors, but they're also musicians. It seems like those two talent sets go so well together, uh, much like uh, film and music do. And uh, I know there's a lot of people who will be edified by this conversation. So we've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you again to our guest, Dr. Annabelle Cohen. You can find her book, The Psychology of Music, at Amazon and Kindle and at Barnes & Noble. And her other writing on music and psychology can be found everywhere scholarly papers are found, like academia.edu and researchgate.net. Join us next Friday, the 26th, and we'll be joined by Danny Bilson, father of actress Rachel Bilson, and director, producer, and co-writer of my favorite film, Disney's The Rocketeer, CBS's The Flash, and Spike Lee's Oscar contender for Best Picture this year, The Five Bloods. And remember, Heilman and Haber can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and we're pleased to announce Pandora. 
If you enjoy the show, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until we're all treading the boards together again, thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us right here on Heilman and Haver.